I was so worried. About what? Well, that all the things that have been happening to me were because of you and your mother. And when Dr. Raymond showed me Mrs. Bates' corpse, I knew she was dead for sure. But now, now I know it's somebody completely different. Who is it? My real mother. Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996. You can read all of my written work at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. If you like this show that you hear today, I do encourage you to also check out my other podcast, very similar to this one. It's called To the 90s and Beyond. You can find it wherever you're listening to this, whatever platform, or you can go to my website, quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the second part of a five-part series looking at the psycho films of the 1980s, although one of them did come out in 1990, and another one was a pilot for a television show, but I'll get into those when the subject comes up. Today, I'm going to be getting into the sequel for the 1960 film that I covered on the previous episode of Psycho, but this one actually takes place in the 1980s, 1983 to be specific. Psycho 2. Psycho 2 is an R-rated film. It does have strong, bloody violence, some brief nudity, sexual references, brief drug content, and language. The runtime is an hour and 53 minutes. This brings back Anthony Perkins into his uh, most iconic role as Norman Bates. Meg Tilly, Frank Loggia, Vera Miles, also returning from Psycho, and Dennis Franz appear in Psycho 2. The director is Richard Franklin, and the screenplay credited to Tom Holland. Now, the origin of Psycho 2 is a little bit twisty. It wasn't necessarily a direct intention by Universal to direct it. In fact, kind of started to germinate it in 1980. The screenwriting team of Gary Travis and Michael January, they were newcomers in the business. They concocted this original horror film idea. And their idea was this woman is going to buy a house, and then later she comes to believe that the house that she purchased is haunted. But sometime during the story, it's revealed that there are actually other people, others living secretly in the house that are trying to drive her mad. Now, when Travis was imagining the house and what it looked like, he had in mind the Bates residence in Psycho, the Bates house. And that caused him to think, hey, you know what? All of these slasher movies are coming out. All of these horror sequels, they're very popular, at least in the early 1980s. And he wondered why somebody hadn't had the notion to make a sequel to the one that inspired a lot of those slashers, 1960s Psycho. Now, he surmised that a Psycho sequel, if nobody else was going to make it, they might as well do it because this was a far more marketable idea. It definitely would make a splash in the industry for their first effort. So they revised their story into what would become Psycho 2, The Return of Norman Bates. In Travis in January's story, Norman Bates, he escapes after murdering a security guard and then setting fire to this Northern California mental hospital that he's been put up into since the murders back when he was in his younger days. Norman gets out, he returns to his boyhood home, and he finds 
Somebody's already living there. In fact, it's Lila Loomis, now married to Sam Loomis. Lila, the sister of the woman that he murdered 20 years prior. Of course, Marion Crane, if you've seen Psycho. Lila's bought the house and the motel that it overlooks. It's kind of her way of overcoming the grief of the murder of her sister. Lila's daughter, as well as her fiancé, are also visiting at the time. But after Norman arrives, things start to go a little bit haywire. Lila starts experiencing blackouts. Motel guests start getting murdered. So is it Lila that's going mad, or is Norman returning to his old murderous ways? There's more to the story than that, but since it was never produced, I don't need to go, I don't think, any further into it. Travis and January were shopping around their idea. They thought this would be a $9 million budgeted psycho sequel. They did it through their production venture called The Picture Striking Company. They were going to also produce this film. Anthony Perkins, he was approached. He was asked to return to the role of Norman Bates. And to sweeten the deal to get him on board, they offered him the director's chair because directing is something that Perkins had been wanting to do for some time. Vera Miles, as well as Martin Balsam, they were also offered parts. Obviously, Vera Miles was going to play Lila. Now, Martin Balsam, you know, his character, Milton Arbogast in Psycho, he had died. He was murdered by Norman. So he was going to be brought back here to play Milton's brother, who was a, a psychiatrist treating Norman in the hospital. And they also sought Jamie Lee Curtis to play Lila's daughter and Greg Meadows to play her fiance. But Jamie Lee Curtis, the daughter of Janet Lee, who played Marion Crane, who gets murdered in Psycho in the infamous shower scene. They concocted a scene where she would get murdered, not in the shower, but in a hot tub, which she called exceedingly dumb. So she essentially declined joining on to the production. Longtime production manager for Alfred Hitchcock, Doc Erickson, he was tapped to produce. Now, upon learning of the project, Robert Block, the author of the original Psycho novel from the late 1950s, he grew incensed. No one had informed him about this from the production, and nobody bothered to ask him for permission to use his characters for a new film. Block's agent encouraged Block to immediately write a follow-up book called Psycho 2, beating them to the punch. Later, while at a science fiction convention in Melbourne, Australia, Block began discussing what would become his next novel, Psycho 2. He discussed it with Australian filmmaker Richard Franklin, who was there promoting his Hitchcockian thriller called Road Games, and a, a big Hitchcock fan. After their conversation, Franklin's agent started making phone calls. He wanted to inquire about acquiring the film rights to Block's book, if they could get it. And during the process, they discovered that Universal Pictures' contract with Block for the original Psycho were pretty much all-encompassing in terms of bringing those characters to the screen. That included any remakes or sequels. This was kind of a discovery to Universal that there was a market for a Psycho sequel because it was getting a lot of buzz not only in the film industry, but also in the book world. So Universal immediately sent the picture-striking company, the production house for Travis and January, a cease and desist letter that they were not to make this film. Travis and January, they lawyered up. They hired copyright lawyers. And those copyright lawyers advised them they should avoid any kind of direct references in the story to characters or things that were directly from the block novel or the Hitchcock film. They also shortened the title of their film from Psycho 2 the return of Norman Bates to just the return of Norman to leave some ambiguity there. But once word got out in the industry, 
that they were trying to make a Psycho sequel without the film rights, the actors began to drop out. So, Travis in January, they still thought that they had a nifty idea, so they repackaged it as The Return of the Psycho, but investor interest soon evaporated, and that forced them to eventually abandon their ideas. Now, as a courtesy, Block's agent submitted the Psycho 2 manuscript when it was done to Universal, before it was published, though. Universal, they read it, they decided it was not filmable. It really didn't feature Norman enough, and it took a lot of satirical jabs at Hollywood's thirst for gore and violence and, of course, sequelitis, so it was basically making fun of itself if they were to ever adapt it into a film. They requested that Block change the book. Maybe it shouldn't be said in Hollywood, but Block refused. He wanted to go forward with it. He'd spent a lot of time working on it. They even returned the manuscript to him, and they informed Block's agent in no uncertain terms that they hated his book, and they would never make it. Now, in early 1982, an independent film producer named Bernard Schwartz, he was brokering a deal between Universal and Oak Media Development Corporation. They were the owners of a broadcast pay TV service called On TV. And Oak Media were putting up $18 million for Universal to produce four theatrically released features that would exclusively run on On TV. MCA president Sid Scheinberg provided Schwartz with this list of potential projects and selected among them as the first project that they would work on was Psycho 2. This was something that would immediately capture public interest. Universal did some market research on this, and they found that 90% of American moviegoers over the age of 12 had heard of Norman Bates. This was a character that was already ingrained in popular culture. So they gave the green light, and then they suggested the block. Maybe he should drop his novel that was also going to carry the same title as their film, Psycho 2, and instead write an adaptation of Psycho 2 instead. No can do. Said Block, he really wanted to push forward with his book, whether they were going to make a film of it or not, or whether it was going to be confused with the movie, it didn't matter. Universal budgeted Psycho 2 at $5 million. Longtime Hitchcock associate Hilton Green, he had served as Psycho's first assistant director, he was hired on to become line producer to give the film some credibility. For the director, Bernard Schwartz hired Richard Franklin, the guy who initially wanted to get the rights to Psycho 2. He had collaborated with Bernard Schwartz on the aforementioned road games. Franklin, as I mentioned, he was a big fan of Hitchcock. He described himself as a lifelong student of Hitchcock. At 12 years old, he and a good friend snuck into theaters five times to see Psycho on the big screen. And his love for Hitchcock did not stop there. He watched all of the rest of his movies, and Hitchcock really inspired him eventually to pursue film school at USC in Southern California. And while there as a student, Franklin put together a Hitchcock retrospective and even invited Hitchcock himself to attend. And surprise, surprise, he did show up for one evening of the festivities. They became friends after that. Hitchcock invited Franklin to the sets of his Hollywood films like Topaz and Family Plot. And eventually, when Franklin became a filmmaker himself, he dabbled into Hitchcockian fare, including his breakthrough 1978's psycho-influenced film named Patrick, and then, of course, followed by Road Games, which was essentially an homage to Rear Window. Franklin's next intended project was called The Short Night. The Short Night happened to be the film that Hitchcock was planning to make before opting to retire just before his death in 1980. Franklin hesitated, though, when he was offered Psycho 2 because he knew that this was something that film critics were going to regard 
as a sequel to a masterpiece. This was going to be sacrilege, especially from somebody that they had never heard of, an industry newcomer, essentially. But Franklin rationalized. He could not pass up the opportunity to make his first American film. He didn't know if he was ever going to get the chance again. And furthermore, he could not stomach seeing this project go to anybody else. In his mind and in his heart, Franklin really wanted Psycho 2. If he was going to make it, it was going to reflect the original. It was going to complement the original. It was not going to be a mere regurgitation. He wanted to bring Norman Bates and his story full circle. He wanted to recapture the feeling that he had when he first snuck into those movie theaters. He didn't want to think of it as some sort of film scholar or some sort of person who analyzes film like he does today. He wanted to capture that feeling, so he actively avoided watching more than just a few clips of Psycho to refresh his memory as to the plot. Franklin studied instead older Hitchcock films to try to get some ideas. But when it came to Psycho itself, he did want to maintain a consistent tone because Psycho had blended a lot of different genres, including gothic melodrama, tragedy, suspense, thriller elements, macabre horror, and black comedy. Franklin wanted audiences to watch the two films. If they were going to watch them together, he wanted the viewer to see both of them as one film eventually. And that meant shooting Psycho 2 in black and white. However, Universal refused. They didn't want the film in black and white. Black and white films did not do nearly as well financially. And people associated them with art films and they didn't want that. But Universal did consider an alternate proposal by Franklin to shoot the film in color for cable and video releases, but it would be released into theaters in black and white because it was going to really appeal to the people who liked Psycho most. As Universal mulled that over, Franklin decided he was just going to drop the idea because there was a rumor that started spreading that Hitchcock had shot Psycho test footage in color. It existed somewhere and that got everybody really amped up. But even though this turned out to be false, Franklin noticed that there was a lot of excitement among Psycho fans to see what the based house was going to look like in color. And if he did his film in color, that would be a really strong selling point for getting people to go see Psycho 2. Anthony Perkins here was sought again to be in a Psycho 2 film. He was intrigued, but he would not sign on until he read a screenplay. In his mind, at least it had to be as good as the one done by Travis and January that he was going to direct. So Franklin and Schwartz started scouring scripts of a lot of promising young thriller screenwriters. Franklin's lawyer happened to be representing an actual screenwriter who had done a couple of screenplays that had yet to be produced. His name was Tom Holland. One of them was a thriller. The other one was kind of an Arthurian legend thing that Franklin actually loved even more than the thriller. And he loved above that Holland's storytelling sensibilities. So he met with Holland and the two immediately hit it off. They had interesting ideas and they were definitely in mesh. They started working together. They composed a checklist for what they thought a psycho sequel absolutely required. And foremost, getting Perkins on board. Perkins had to approve. So when Holland started writing the script, he wrote it specifically in a manner that would lure Anthony Perkins to sign on. Norman was going to be the protagonist. He was going to be the main focus of this version of Psycho, unlike the original. He was going to be very sympathetic as well, a tragic figure who can't seem to escape his sordid past. They felt just like the original. People were going to expect that it had a lot of twists, a twist ending specifically. But what could they do to match Psycho's reveal of Norman as the murderer and mother existing only in his imagination. It had to match that. So Franklin went back to the one thing that 
always bothered him about Psycho, even though he loved the movie and he loved Hitchcock. He didn't think that Hitchcock's portrayal of Mother as a cackling hag made sense because if Norman had killed Norma Bates when he was 12 years old, she'd have been much younger than this grandmotherly woman that you hear voiced in Psycho. One way to make it make sense and to give us the new twist is if Norman had a biological mother that was somebody else, somebody who might still be living today. The twist in Psycho 2 was going to be to set up Norman as the killer and then reveal in the end that it was Norman's mother, his real mother, all along. Holland's completed script finds serial killer Norman Bates. He's released from this California mental institution after 22 years. Lila Loomis, yes, coincidentally, a similar twist to the January Travis script. She was going to be incensed that Norman has been deemed of sound mind and allowed to roam in the public as a free man. Lila is determined to prove that Norman is still a danger to society. So Norman returns to his childhood home and the Bates Motel. He takes up a cook's assistant job nearby at the behest of his psychiatrist at a local diner. He befriends this waitress named Mary Samuels, and that's kind of an Easter egg if you're a psycho fan. Marion Crane was really named Mary in Block's book. And if you watch the psycho film, she falsely signs the motel registry as Marie Samuels in the Hitchcock film. Norman offers Mary a room to stay after she's basically dumped by her boyfriend and kicked out of his house. And then Norman starts receiving notes, phone calls from mother and glimpsing her around the house. And when people begin dying, Norman wonders if he's become his old self, and so does everybody else. Now, Perkins called Holland's first draft a suspenseful page-turner. He approved of it, and after receiving the blessing of Hitchcock's widow, Alma Reville, and Hitchcock's daughter, Pat, to return to the role, Perkins agreed to sign on for his asking price of $1 million. However, that price tag for a $5 million film was going to severely impact the movie's success because sacrifices would have to be made elsewhere. Bernard Schwartz, who was negotiating with uh, Perkins, bluffed. He said that Christopher Walken was ready to sign on to play Norman if Perkins was not going to be available and he would take much less. So Perkins kind of fell for that. He agreed to less money, but he wanted to co-direct with Franklin. However, Universal was adamantly opposed to giving Perkins any creative input, given that he had no previous experience. So without any other prospects and personally being opposed to anybody else playing the role, Perkins swallowed his pride and against the protests of his agent, he accepted a lower salary in exchange for a percentage deal, some back-end money. Now, Perkins wasn't always embracing of playing Norman Bates. In fact, it took him many years to embrace the uh, public's inability to separate him from Norman. Perkins used to always scowl whenever strangers started approaching him in public. They always wanted to talk about Psycho among all of his films. And it wasn't until his wife, Barry Berenson, mentioned that his glares to the public, his staring them down instead of engaging them in conversation, that further perpetuated this Norman-like demeanor. He was making himself more and more like Norman in the mind of the public by being so standoffish. So he decided to take her advice and go for a very friendly approach when people came up to him. And that absolutely changed Perkins' perspective enough to start considering, hey, you know what? There was never a guarantee that his career would have flourished, even if he never played Norman Bates. He 
Who's to say that he would have become a superstar? So instead of fighting the waves, Perkins decided he was going to ride them, and he was going to fully embrace Norman Bates. And he started feeling better not only about his appearance in Psycho, but he started feeling better about himself. He observed Norman Bates as the Hamlet among horror roles. He was flawed, yet complex and sympathetic. He was the crown jewel of the psycho killers in cinema. Now, Franklin wanted Norman to be very much like the Psycho House, completely unchanged since the last time we saw them. Audiences should recognize Norman Bates as the same character that they recognized from Psycho immediately. So Franklin also wanted to begin Psycho 2 with the shower murder scene from Psycho because that was kind of a way of a refresher. He wanted to remind audiences that Norman killed women while in drag, even those people who had not seen the original Psycho because not everybody had a VCR back in the early 1980s. So when Bernard Schwartz called Janet Lee for permission to reuse the shower scene in Psycho, she actually was very confused because Bernard Schwartz happened to be the real name of Tony Curtis, Janet's husband, when she made Psycho. Exterior shots took place in Los Angeles and Bakersfield, Atascadero, and other places in Central California. The rest were done on the Universal lot. Because it had become a staple at the Universal Studios tour, the Bates Victorian house still did exist on the Universal lot. It was rebuilt in a different location, though. But the Bates Motel structure had long since been raised. About 40 feet of the motel's exterior had to be rebuilt using original blueprints. They didn't have enough money to really do the full thing or really a need. They encompassed the main office as well as one cabin, and they brought in Albert Whitlock, a visual effects guru, and his crew to craft matte paintings whenever they needed to show the complete edifice. Franklin discovered while looking at the blueprints that actually Hitchcock had taken a lot of liberties in making the interiors because the amount of interiors of the Psycho House was actually more than you would get by looking at the exterior house. So the interior of the Psycho House is actually larger than what the house could possibly contain. Now, Perkins, knowing that all eyes were going to be on him again, he was concerned about his very gaunt appearance, his slight appearance. He took to wearing padded shirts for the making of Psycho. Although Universal nixed Perkins' co-directing, Franklin was very liberal in allowing Perkins very wide latitude. He added a lot of character touches to Norman. He felt that Perkins was as much an expert at Norman as anybody. So he allowed Perkins a lot of creative freedom to try to make the part his own, at least within the range of being recognizable to the first film, and that included changing some of the dialogue as well as some of the scenes. For instance, Perkins invented this moment when Norman is gazing kind of longingly into a mirror. It's almost as if for the first time, and that presumably spins off of uh, Norman's inability to look at himself in a mirror for fear of what he had become in the original Psycho. You never see him framed in a mirror as all of the other characters are. Vera Miles, she returns to the Lila Crane role, now called Lila Loomis. She married Sam Loomis, Marion's former lover. Miles was initially worried that Psycho 2 was going to be another sick slasher film, but she found the Holland script very tasteful, very respectful of the original film, placing terror in the mind of the audiences instead of just in their eyes. Miles did find it extremely eerie to walk on the Psycho 2 set because it was meticulously recreated by production designer John W. Corso to look exactly as it did, although aged 22 years, as the original Psycho House and Motel, using photographs and blueprints from the original film. And many of the original props were found in studio storage, or they were currently being used in other Universal productions, so they were still on hand. The original showerhead was used as recently 
as in John Carpenter's The Thing, but that happened to get stolen for some reason during pre-production, and that was unavailable. But set designer Jennifer Polito, she rented duplicate props as well as other furnishings for what was no longer available. As far as the casting of Mary Samuels goes, although Jamie Lee Curtis was the star of Richard Franklin's Road Games, she did decline the role of Mary because she had been wanting at that point after a string of scream queen type roles to break out of horror, and she opted to do uh, Trading Places instead. Many other actresses were brought in to audition, including Carrie Fisher, Kathleen Turner, as well as more newcomers at that time in the industry, Meg Ryan and Linda Hamilton. Franklin didn't really like Carrie Fisher and Kathleen Turner because they were known quantities at the time. They would be more like distractions, so he wanted to have somebody new. So he narrowed it down to two very up-and-coming, very fresh-faced finalists, Lisa Eilbacher and Meg Tilly. Perkins was asked to come in and read with both of them, and eventually Perkins recommended Tilly, who Franklin did go with. Eilbacher went on to be in a Beverly Hills Cop. After pursuing Simon Oakland to reprise his role as Norman's psychiatrist, Dr. Richmond, when he came in, he appeared to be in ill health, so they cast instead Robert Loggia, Coincidentally, somebody who had originally been considered to play Sam Loomis in 1960's Psycho, they changed the name of the character from Richmond to Raymond to make it a, a different character. John Gavin, he happened to be unavailable to return as Sam Loomis because he was acting as Ronald Reagan's United States ambassador to Mexico at the time. And so Lila's character became a widow in the script. Perkins' eight-year-old son, Osgood, who would become a actor in his own right sometime later. He plays a young Norman for a brief flashback. John McIntyre was scheduled to reprise his role as Sheriff Chambers, but there was a miscommunication that resulted in his unavailability, so they recast that part instead to Hugh Gillen, and he became a different character called Sheriff Hunt. Perkins, while he was there, he started growing very fond of his stand-in, his stuntman, if you want to call him that, Kurt Paul. He kept Paul around on and off the set. He allowed him to stay at his home during the production. They became very fast friends. Some outsiders observed the relationship as kind of a mentorship, but others felt there might be something more. Perkins started making comments needling Paul for being gay. Maybe it was wishful thinking, or maybe he knew something more because Perkins was uh, also in the closet at the time. Paul, by the way, persistently denied that he was gay. As a lark, Perkins did have Paul regularly stand outside the psycho house and wave to the cheering tourists who thought that he was the real Anthony Perkins as they came by on the Universal Studios tour. Perkins kind of gave up on being friendly to the crowd when he heard one of the announcers on the tram refer to him as Anthony Hopkins instead of Perkins, which he did not like. Like Hitchcock, Franklin asserted secrecy when he was making Psycho 2, so only four complete scripts did exist, and those happened to be locked in Franklin's office safe, only for viewing from the people that he approved of. Universal executives were not among them. They did not know what the ending was until they saw a rough-cut screening at the end of the production. An early script did have a different ending. They had Norman coming home from the police station. He would find Mary, who survives being shot at some point. She's in the rocking chair and now is crazy and has assumed the mother role. This was changed somewhat during the production so that Mary is killed by the cops during her altercation with Norman. Tilly did express relief at being killed because she did not want to be stuck making endless sequels. 
uh, primarily because she hated her experience working on Psycho 2, very famously. Tilly, she had grown up in rural British Columbia. She didn't have a her family didn't really have a television. She never saw the original Psycho, at least not until she got the role, and then she viewed it. But uh, she didn't really understand in her mind what kind of an impact it really had over Perkins' entire career after making the film. Franklin, when he found out that she, Meg really didn't have very much concept as far as the importance of Psycho or Tony Perkins in the film, he thought that that was kind of perfect for the character. She was supposed to be very naive. Tilly had a good time, at least in the first few days, until there was a, an instance that made her feel uncomfortable. Perkins started becoming disgruntled because after they started screening dailies, Tilly was consistently praised for her performance, but Perkins always seemed to draw a lot of comments about seeming stiff or maybe unnatural or unconvincing in his performance. He hadn't quite worked out the Norman that everybody knew him to be trying to recapture that same feelings. So he said that, you know, the dialogue didn't seem like Norman to him, so he started rewriting some of the dialogue to fit in with his concept of Norman. And in the process, he also started rewriting Tilly's role as Mary, giving her new lines for their scenes. And Tilly started feeling that Perkins was giving her intentionally much more difficult dialogue, maybe some tongue twisters in there to try to throw her performance, maybe feeling jealous that she was getting praise and he was not. Eventually, Tilly started making questions as to why Tony Perkins was receiving so many special privileges to change things here and there, and it really ruffled his feathers when he found out that Tilly was talking about him behind his back and questioning his authority. He started demanding Tilly should be replaced after being told that really they had shot way too much footage with Tilly to change now in this low-budget production. Perkins began treating Tilly a lot more cruelly in person. He started playing what she called mind games, and he made a lot of disparaging comments about her appearance or maybe her performance that really shook her confidence, especially right before they were going to film. Sometimes that resulted in her crying from hurt feelings, even when they were supposed to be acting on the screen. Others observed that there was a lot of professional jealousy that was driving Perkins at this time. She, he was somehow bitter that this very talented actress was stealing some of his limelight in scenes in a film that he felt was his last shot to save his career. He wanted all focus on him and not these other talented actors. And things really started coming to a head when Perkins asked for a new scene to be put into the film. There was going to be a deeper emotional moment that was really going to showcase his acting abilities. The scene between Mary and Norman where he starts opening up about his early childhood and his many regrets about losing his mother's love and kind of showing Mary mothering him, this was going to be his showcase to the world that he should be put into more roles. As they were acting, Perkins started pausing in a way that Tilly took for not remembering his lines. So after a little bit of silence, Tilly fed him the next line he was supposed to do. And when she did, Perkins grew absolutely incensed because she repeatedly was breaking the silence, feeding the lines, and he felt making him look bad. So he started doing more and he started extending the pauses longer as they continued to do this very difficult scene. And one moment, so long that Tilly felt she had to break the silence at some point because this was definitely not going to be in the film with that much pause. And when she did, Franklin absolutely also joined in on becoming mean to Tilly. He started using abusive language. He screamed that he had not said cut, and she had completely ruined Perkins' scene because he was crying at the time. Tilly stormed out and contemplated quitting the movie 
as well as quitting acting altogether at that point. Obviously, if you know your films of the 1980s, you know she did not quit acting. In fact, she went on to do bigger and better things eventually. Psycho 2 contains narrative twists that might seem silly in retrospect, but I do think that as the film plays, I think they're pretty effective at keeping you reeled in as to what's going to happen. Franklin did say that the twists that each of them culminating in some sort of death are more inspired by the play and the film Sleuth than in Psycho, but he also knew that he could not replicate Psycho's shower murder montage, so he wanted the murders to happen in Psycho 2 to evoke some sort of twist or a visceral punch. While Psycho might seem restrained compared to a lot of the modern horror slashers, in its day, Psycho was considered actually very shocking, very gratuitous at the time, so Franklin took that as a sign that he could also try to shock audiences with violence. He did not have to be as reserved as Psycho seemed by comparison in the 20 years of other horror slashers that had come out since. Franklin thought that audiences might expect that the sequel to Psycho would resemble it by switching styles. So he pushed for the style change not to happen at the end of the first act, but to happen at the beginning of the third act. And he would use ratcheting up the violence as the tonal shift. Although many critics did complain about that tonal shift very vehemently. It was one of the biggest complaints about Psycho 2 that you'll find is that uh, the violence gets very gratuitous very quickly in that last third. Franklin did argue that Hitchcock would have been disappointed if audiences walked out of the theater without feeling shocked or seeing something unexpected at all. So he felt that he had carte blanche to be able to give them those shocks. And audiences of 1983 were much more inured to that level of violence. So he had to go a little bit further than what they might be expecting. The secret ending does feature diner employee, we find out, Emma Spool, revealing in the end that she is, in fact, Norman's real mother. Like Norman, she had been locked away in an institution in her early adulthood, and so her sister, Norma, raised Norman. Norman was scripted to eventually kill Spool like he did Norma by poisoning her tea, but Franklin decided it would be a bigger shock to audience instead to have her walloped out of the blue on the head with this shovel using blunt force and one very swift shot this would be a counter to the very elaborate shower montage in psycho it was just all going to be done almost like it was in one take but unfortunately the single shot aspect of it was edited into three cuts because perkins accidentally hit the light fixture behind him when he was swinging back the shovel and when he smashed the dummy that was supposed to match the shot using the live actor wearing a helmet under a wig that was hit with a light rubber shovel, he was using a real shovel, and the dummy was too visibly damaged to use again, except through a side shot. So they had to kind of edit it a little more than uh, Franklin really wanted. As far as the score goes, the original intent was to reuse Bernard Herrmann's Psycho score, but as they applied it to the film, they found out that it just was not giving the right tone for this new film. So Franklin decided, well, maybe if he used Herrmann's music from other Universal Hitchcock films, but it still wasn't quite working out. Editor Verna Fields, who was one of the vice presidents at Universal at the time, she encouraged Franklin to use an original score instead. Franklin decided if he had his choice of composers, he was going to choose Jerry Goldsmith, somebody he deeply admired. Goldsmith did come in. He wanted to pay homage to Herman in his score, but he wanted to avoid borrowing from the Psycho score, at least beyond the shower scene flashback at the beginning of the film. 
So Goldsmith did a little bit more. Herman, of course, used only strings in the original Psycho. Goldsmith added a lot more modern stuff like synthesizers. He also put in some oboes and gongs and other things that would differentiate it from the Herman score. He provided about an hour of music in all, including these two Beethoven sonatas that Norman plays on the piano in the Bates house. Now, Psycho 2, when it was finally released, obviously everybody's fears were that it had the unenviable task of following up on a cinematic masterpiece and it was going to be graded very harshly as a result. So it was a tricky way to market it because they wanted to market it for today's crowd, the ones who actually were going to see horror films, but they also wanted to avoid comparisons to cheap slasher films that were out at the time. There was a glut of them in the market at the time, and they were not making nearly as much money as even the production of Psycho 2. So the marketing campaign had to thread a needle here to try to successfully promote Psycho 2 as an above average, a, a quality film that was going to be made by people who either worked on the original at some point or were deep admirers of Hitchcock. And this was going to be a respectable attempt to continue the original Psycho. And it worked. It bested War Games for second place. They were both debuting at the same week. It was just behind Return of the Jedi, which was in its second week of release. It scored overall $35 million domestically off of that $5 million budget, and it did just as well in international markets too. Now, while Psycho 2 obviously is going to be a far cry from Psycho in the minds of most people not named Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino, by the way, famously said that Psycho 2, was he felt was a better film than Psycho, or at least he liked it more. Although Tarantino has a long history of kind of negating Hitchcock's work, even though he deeply loves Hitchcock imitators like Brian De Palma and Richard Franklin, who he considers two of his favorite directors, which doesn't surprise me, by the way, because, you know, Brian De Palma and Richard Franklin were imitators. And if you study your Tarantino. Tarantino is an imitator of the styles of many directors that he admires. So obviously he would admire other people who can imitate successfully, as De Palma and Franklin did with their Hitchcockian films. So even if it's not as good as the original Psycho, not even close, in my opinion anyway, I do think that when you compare it to all of the other slasher films that were coming out around this period, it definitely is a cut above a lot of those imitators that borrowed very heavily and paid a lot of homage to Psycho at the time. It does occasionally go awry. There are some implausible developments here and there. I mean, it's it's really a big implausibility pill to have to swallow once you uh, once you find out what is actually going on at all times. But I do think that it does still manage to entertain. It has a very nice, dark sense of humor. It has a very quality cast here for this kind of film. The third act gore, that's the part where I think will separate a lot of people. I think if you've watched it enough times, you get used to it and you expect it. But well, that first time when you watch it, there definitely is that tonal shift that might be a little bit jarring, wince-inducing stab and slice moments that weren't there earlier in the film. I think Franklin does ultimately lack Hitchcock's visionary tendencies. The suspense is mostly generated through Tom Holland's screenplay much more so than in the direction, I feel. Although I do think that it's commendable that Franklin at least knows better than to try to outdo Hitchcock at Hitchcock. I think he makes it his own film in the end, even though there are a lot of nods to Hitchcock. I think Psycho 2, in the end, I do think it's made for Psycho fans primarily, who are a little bit more forgiving about somebody deciding to do a continuation of the Norman Bates story. You know, a lot of people at the time did not feel it was necessary. 
successful films are definitely a given today. I mean, you Silence of the Lambs comes out, it wins uh, Oscar for Best Picture, and there's a slew of other films featuring Hannibal Lecter anyway, so it's really par for the course today. But I do think that the scenes of Norman's return here, they're very nicely handled, it's very tasteful. Perkins' performance, I think, is objectively good. Nervous and twitchy, stuttering. He's even very hammy. I mean, it's kind of a campy performance. But I do think it's intentional because I think that the people who made Psycho 2 know that the original Psycho was considered a funny film, even though it was very scary, too. It was definitely going for entertainment value and did not shy away from comedy, and it maintains that same fun tone. So all in all, I will give Psycho 2 three stars. Three stars on my scale means that I do think that it's worthwhile viewing for those people who like this kind of movie, especially people who like the original Psycho, who also like horror films of the 1980s. So if you like both those things, I do encourage you to watch Psycho 2. I do think it's a respectable effort that will only disappoint if you really want to compare it to the quality and the impact of the first film. There are a lot of nifty things happening in Psycho 2 that I do think makes it worthwhile as kind of a fan service film, we, we're very used to this kind of film today. So that's why I do think that Psycho 2, over time, has been more reevaluated as a pretty good effort, even though back in the day, a lot of people were very dismissive of it because it was treading on so called hallowed ground. So three stars out of four is what I give Psycho 2. Obviously, I'm going to continue on in this podcast. The next episode is going to continue on with the next entry in the Psycho series. If this was called Psycho 2, well, of course, the next one is called Psycho 3, and it came out in 1986. This time, Anthony Perkins did get to sit in the director's chair, for better or worse, and I will talk about that on the next episode. Psycho 3, if you want to keep up with the reviews as I get to them. If you have your own thoughts on Psycho 2 that you want to impart, if you agree with Tarantino and think that Psycho 2 is better than Psycho, <laughs> you won't ever convince me. But if you want to explain why you feel that way, you can do so. You can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram are also there. Email is the best way to get in touch and get me to respond. And I'll look forward to hearing from you if you do. But until then, thank you so much, everyone, for listening and joining me as we travel around the world in 80s movies. Mm-hmm.